It's not allowed. The book of Jude, let's begin in verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though, you weren't, we once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality, and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal life. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory and exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray together. 
Father, thank you for the preeminence of your word. We thank you, Lord, that we have it to turn to any given time, and we thank you that it doesn't change. We thank you for how sufficient it is. We thank you that it will outlive the heavens and the earth, Lord. So now we pray that you would set this time aside for your special use, Lord. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. We pray that he would make application of these verses uniquely to each one of us as only he can. We commit our hearts to you, Lord, as open and pliable and teachable. We want to be doers of the word, not just hearers only deceiving ourselves. We ask that you would help us to obey what you tell us by your grace and by your power. And we thank you for the privilege of holiness. We thank you that it's its own reward. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In verse 1, he starts this way. He says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And he's going to talk about the earnestly contending for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Just like we saw with the Apostle John, he has to deal with false teachers and false uh, doctrines that were infiltrating the church. We, didn't just, we don't just have false doctrine today. We, it's happened all through the history of, of the church. And so we need to be careful about what we allow into our hearts, into our lives. We have to be careful about what we accept as truth. People post things on Facebook. People email us things. People uh, talk about great teachers. We go into bookstores and we see the top ten Christian bestsellers. We can't automatically assume that that's safe uh, doctrine for us. We're called to test everything by Scripture, and so we're supposed to contend for the faith. Now, he says his name is Jude here at the beginning of verse 1. Likely, that's the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. There are f- at least four Judes in the New Testament, but this one he identifies himself as, as the brother of James. And we're told in Mark chapter 6, uh, verses 2 and 3, this, And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? That's what they say about me sometimes, but it's a little bit different twist, you know. Where does this man get these things? But to them, it was a a positive, uh, you know, comment related to his teachings. And what wisdom is this uh, which is given him? That such mighty works are performed by his hands. And is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. So we're told in Mark chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, that there were at least seven children in the Lord Jesus' earthly family. Now, all of the other six siblings, or however many more there were, because he says sisters, and say, how many sisters? However many siblings he had, they were all half-sisters. They were, they were uh, the offspring of Joseph and Mary. Mary did have other children after the Lord Jesus. The scripture teaches that. But obviously, there's a difference between the Lord Jesus and the others, because uh, Mary was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit, not by Joseph. So we're told that the Lord Jesus had brothers. And so we saw as we went through the book of James, that James who wrote the book of James is that other sibling or one of the other uh, boys there in the family, James. And so here we have Jude. Jude is the brother of James and the the full-blooded brother of James, but the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, just like James was. So that's who likely is writing this. Now he says he's a bondservant. 
which means someone that is a willing slave. In, in the history of, of Israel, if you owed somebody money as a Jew, you could sell yourself to them as, and work off that debt, and you couldn't go longer than seven years. You had to be released after that. And so after that time, if you had given yourself over as a slave to somebody to pay off a debt, and you loved them, and you cared for them, and you said, I've never had a, a, a master so loving and wonderful and so forth, then you could say, I want to be their bondservant. I want to be their permanent slave. And so you would go down to the gates of the city where all these financial uh, uh, things were, were handled, and they would, they would pierce your ear uh, with an awe, and you would have an earring that would designate you as the permanent bondservant of this particular person. And there was two characteristics related to a bondservant. One is it was voluntary, as I mentioned. It was completely volitional. The other one was that it was permanent. So that's the picture here. Now, they, they were likely uh, Jews, Jewish believers that, that Jude is writing to. They're very, he goes over their history. In fact, he gives them a history lesson, assuming they have that working knowledge of the Old Testament. So they would be very familiar with this terminology of being a bond servant. But he says, I'm a bond servant of Jesus Christ. I'm a willing slave. I'm a permanent slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a love relationship that I have with him. I'm not serving Against my will, I'm serving in line or in conjunction or commensurate with uh, my will, and, and I'm glad to do it. But then he says, I am the brother of James. So he kind of identifies himself there in, from an earthly standpoint. Now notice who he's writing to in verse 1, he says, continues, he says, To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. So here he's not writing to a church. Many of the church letters were written to churches. Sometimes they were written to persons, not churches per se. But here we have a group of people to whom he's writing, and he, and he says these people are called, sanctified, and preserved, which is true for us as believers. We are just as called, we are just as sanctified, we are just as preserved as any of those believers. So God has called each one of us in a relationship with him and to be fruitful for him. These false teachers that were, that were, that were letting out all this bad doctrine and teaching this bad doctrine, uh, they weren't called. But he says, you are called and you are sanctified, which means to be set apart it's the word we use to, to describe the word holy. They were set apart. These false teachers had plans for them. These false teachers thought these believers are set apart for us, for us to feast upon and teach them false things. But he's saying, no, you're set apart by God the Father, and then you're preserved in Jesus Christ. These false teachers can preserve anyone. And as we'll see, they're not even going to be able to preserve themselves and their eternal destination. But God preserves us, and that's encouraging to us. We need to hear that God is a preserving God. He is a, a God that sets us apart. He's a God that calls us, and that gives us our identity and, and let us, lets us know that we're in the truth and that we have a high calling in our relationship with him. He says in verse 2, Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This is God's will for us. The Holy Spirit inspired Jude to write, Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. That's what God wants for us. Because God had given Jude this heart for the people when he wrote this. So God is the one that's ultimately behind this desire for it to be multiplied to us. We need all the mercy we can get. Amen? Mercy is not getting something that you deserve. 
Grace is getting something good that you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting something bad that you do deserve. And so here he says, mercy and peace, which we experience because we first experienced the grace of God in our lives and love be multiplied. He knows we need these things. We can't ever exhaust God in terms of what he has for us. And he wants to only give us good things. Every good and perfect gift is from above. And so he wants to give us all the mercy we need, all the peace we need, all the love. Maybe you're here today, you sense that you need God's mercy. You've sinned. You've messed up. We all have. God is merciful. That's who he is. He can't help himself, as Dave Miller says, our worship leader. You know, he can't help himself. He has to be gracious. He has to be merciful. He has to be loving. Maybe you need peace today and something's going on in your life that's horrific. God has all the peace that you need. He says to call upon him, bring your request to him, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And this, his love is, of course, always available, and he wants to demonstrate his goodness towards us. Now, he says in verse 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So he starts with beloved, which means one who is loved. He's telling them, I love you. Jude is sharing God's heart. Again, God's heart towards them is love, and he's given him a love for those people. And he says, I was diligent to write to you. He's talking about probably most likely a desire to write on subject matter other than what he's writing to them he had a heart to write to them about their common salvation he was very prepared and ready to do that but he's writing something even though these things are related to salvation and so forth he's writing mainly kind of in a different vein or a different direction that he originally had in mind he said i found it necessary that's important any person that's writing something that is an expression of God's care and concern, and there's a timing to it, it's going to be necessary. They're going to be prompted by the Lord to do that. So he's speaking of his willingness to write and so forth, but he says, I want to exhort you. Now, the word exhort means to stir up. It means to challenge somebody, and it always has a flavor, or it's always seasoned with hope and encouragement that we can do it. People say, well, I have the gift of exhortation, and so I just tell everybody what they're doing wrong all the time, and that's it. That's not the gift of exhortation. Because all the gifts of the Spirit build up, and you're not built up if someone busts you about what you're doing wrong, but doesn't give any hope or encouragement that you can do it. And so there's always that element to it. So he says, I want to exhort you to, to what? To contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And what's interesting about the word earnestly contend it's the word from which we get our word agonize you ever agonized over something now you've seen not probably not a lot of us here have stocks that we're looking at every day it's agonizing that their their stock prices are going down we can agonize about a loved one we can agonize about our job situation we can agonize about a lot of things physically we can you know, you can walk around the block and agonize and pain. You know, I talked last week uh, at Resurrection Sunday about walking seven miles to Emmaus. And I, I had thought about walking seven miles and I never quite got there. But if I were to walk seven miles, I'd probably be in agony a little bit. But, you know, I think the best example in terms of what some of us experience is what women experience in childbirth, which no man can even pretend to know what that's like. We recognize that. But talk about agony. And he's talking about contending and fighting to the point of agony. You have these pictures of people fighting in military history. 
And they're giving everything that they have and they're in pain as they're fighting and they're swinging those swords and they're doing all those things and they're giving everything and, and, and they're pushing themselves in agony to accomplish the goal. That's the picture here. He wants us to fight earnestly for the faith. God's called each one of us to contend for the faith. What does that mean? It means to stand up for the things of the Lord. It means to to say what's truth, to be salt and light in this world. To say, no, that's not right. That behavior is sinful. No, God's word says this. We have to speak up. Sometimes we say, well, if we're loving, we don't want to really rock the boat because we're supposed to be loving and everything. But true true love demonstrates and, and is vocal about the truth. Jesus said it all the time. He said a lot of hard things for people to hear. God's word has a lot of things that's hard for us to hear, but God loves us so much, he's not going to withhold that from us. Just like with your children. You love them so much, you tell them what they don't want to hear sometimes. And so God calls us to do that as well related to the faith, which requires us to equip ourselves. To equip ourselves related to how do we stand up for the things of the, of the Lord? How do we stand up for the things of truth? How do we do that? We have to equip ourselves and then God brings opportunities for us to share with people, and, and we can stand up to those things. So it's very important. He says, I want to exhort you. He wouldn't have to exhort them if they were will, already had this inclination to do it already. The reason why he has this, exhorts them and us is because we have a tendency to not want to do it. <laughs> so he says, you need to do it, and so we need to heed that. Now, notice he says, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Everything related to the Christian faith has already been revealed, so the cults that add new books and all this stuff, this verse militates or, or contradicts that. To say that we can add to God's revelation. The essentials of the Christian faith are not going to change. His, we're not adding to the word of God. We're not adding to his, you know, any prophetic utterance has to line up with scripture. It, has, it can't be anything new in the sense of doctrine or any of those things. It's already been delivered to the saints. And so he says, we must contend for that. Now notice the, the threat to the, the faith he lists in verse 4. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. They don't just come and say, hey, I'm a false teacher. Let, let me teach you what I have to say. They come in unnoticed. They come in covertly. They know what they're doing. They're very smart. They're very crafty. So they creep in unnoticed. And notice he says they were marked out for this condemnation. The scriptures already have warned about them. He told us way in advance that this would happen. There's always been false teachers for one. But also the Lord Jesus warned us that there would be false teachers among us. The apostles warned us that false teachers would come. Remember the Apostle Paul on Miletus warning the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 saying, day and night I warned you with tears that men from among you, that means people that have crept in, will come in as, and, and they won't spare the flock. You know, so, so God says, this is, not, this is not new, this is not a new concept, this is, this, you've been warned about this already, this is nothing that should take you by surprise. They're ungodly men, he says there, who turn the grace of God into lewdness, and deny the only Lord God of our, and our Lord Jesus Christ. So their message is, just do whatever you want to do. Like, 
basically you're ignoring God's word. You're denying the things in God's word. And you're saying this is this behavior, this expression of yourself is okay. And, and God comes in and says, no, it's not okay. I get to define what's sin and what's not sin. And it doesn't matter if this entire world rises up and says this behavior is okay and acceptable. God comes in and says, no, it's not. And the warning here from Judah, and there is a warning. The warning is that God's going to judge regardless of what anyone thinks. And he's, he's, he's going to show them that that's always been the case. So people are lowering the standard of, of, of personal holiness. The, they're making compromises and churches are just jumping right in, unfortunately, and saying, now this is okay, this is the culture now, this is a, a losing argument, we're never going to win the culture, so let's just become like the culture. And God says, no, I've called you to be different. It doesn't matter how bad this world gets, I've called you to be different in a healthy, holy way, instead of caving to what this world says. So he's going to give them three examples coming up here. Three examples of a, a small minority influencing a larger majority and the result is that they influence them for evil. So that's what he's going to give us. The first example uh, is the, the, those that fell in the wilderness there. He says, but I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So let's go back to Kadesh Barnea there. They came out of Egypt and they're there. They send in the 12 spies Ten came back with a bad report. Two, Joshua and Caleb came back with a good report. And the difference was of how they were measuring things. The spies, the the ten spies that came back with a bad report, they were measuring what they saw against the Israelites. Joshua and Caleb were measuring what they saw by how big God was. They were seeing the same things. But one of them was measuring it against man and what man can do. The other one was measuring it against what God can do. And God already told them they were going to take the land. It wasn't like, counsel me and help me know if I can conquer this land through you. He was saying it's already going to happen there. But these ten spies, a minority, infiltrated in the sense of their opinion and affected the faith of two to three million people. The first example of a small minority influencing a larger amount of people for evil and the warning associated with it because he says afterward destroyed those who did not believe because God judged that, judged them because of that. Anyone over the age of 20 was never going to see the promised land except Joshua and Caleb and God kept that promise. So this whole larger amount of people, their faith was poisoned by a very small few. Just like in this church here, these groups of churches where a very small few of false teachers had the potential to influence the larger whole and, and, and there was a risk associated with it. The second example of how a small minority can sway a larger majority for evil is what happened in heaven in the very beginning. He says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved an everlasting change under darkness for the judgment of that great day. What happened in heaven? Lucifer, he had pride in his heart, wanted to be worshipped. He deceived a third of the angels. We don't, we're not told how many angels there were. There's a lot of angels, but we're not told exactly the amount. But we know a third of them were deceived and they were cast down to earth. And then a portion of them, 
we're told in, in, in Genesis that they engaged in, in ungodly practices and so forth, whether through demon possession or somehow taking a body, we're not told. And so we're told in Peter that, that, there's their way, they, that Jesus came and proclaimed judgment upon them uh, between the time he died and the time he rose from the dead there. So a small portion of those fallen angels are, are waiting judgment right now in Hades. And, and so he comes in and says there's a small minority that affected a larger amount, just like what's going on in the church among you. Now, the third example of how a small minority can sway a larger majority for evil is Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to show them examples. Suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So those two cities and a few around them were wicked. They were wicked. And, and those angels, those two angels came with the angel of the Lord. And the two angels came to the city and the men wanted to have sexual uh, relations with those angels because they didn't know they were angels. And, and Lot tries to protect them and so forth. The angels strike them with blindness and so forth. But they were judged. They were judged because of their sin. He says, Sexual morality and going after strange flesh, those people set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal. Notice the word eternal fire at the end of verse 7. It wasn't just the physical fire of devouring those cities, but there was an eternal judgment that happened as well. It's not by accident the Holy Spirit puts that in there because there's the risk of apostasy. Now notice Jude describes the character traits of these false teachers beginning in verse 8. He says, Likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said the Lord rebuke you. Now we're told that with Moses' death, that God is the one who buried him. In Deuteronomy chapter 34, you can write this in the margin if you'd like, verses 5 through 7, this is the account of Moses dying. He says, so Moses, the servant of of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, that the capital H, you know, he, that is the Lord, buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his grave to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. So Moses wasn't allowed because of his sin, wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. God brought him up on a mountain to be able to look into it, but he didn't allow him to go in. And then that's when his time was up. And so we're told that no human buried Moses. That God did it. And somehow Michael the archangel played a role in that. Maybe God dispatched Michael to actually do that, to bury Moses' body. But somehow, we're not told, he had some kind of role in that. And evidently, Satan wanted to have that body for some reason. Maybe to 
cause idolatry. Because if the maybe if the Israelites having his body would worship that body and, and, and so forth. And there was a reason why God buried it the way that he buried it away from them. And Satan wanted to interrupt that. And Michael the Archangel wasn't going to be the last time he was going to uh, contend with, with, the, with Satan. Uh, he, he engaged him and he uh, fought him and so forth. But in the context of that, we're told he did not bring a reviling accusation against him. He didn't call him a name. He didn't slander him or whatever. He just said, the Lord rebuke you. And so these false teachers, he says in verse 8, they defile the flesh in terms of their, they live sinful and so forth. They reject authority. And he says in the last part of verse 8, and speak evil of dignitaries. This is, he's not talking about them speaking evil of humans that are in authority, as I'm sure they did, though, being prideful and being you know, consumed with themselves. The context, especially in light of verse 9, is talking about spiritual dignitaries, spiritual, the spiritual realm there. So here we are, we're, you know, we're exhorted and encouraged. We're not to slander the demonic realm or Satan. We're not even supposed to talk to, to him. We're never told to rebuke Satan in Scripture. You won't find that in the Bible. You were told to resist him and he will flee. We're told to cast out demons. We do that. But to address him, we're not told as believers to address him anywhere in Scripture. He's not even worthy of one syllable. We don't have to talk to him because the Lord Jesus fights our battles. He's the one that gives us the victory. So there's, so if we are uh, slandering or insulting and so forth, we don't understand God's word here because we're not told to do that. We're told to to go to the Lord and, and let the Lord fight our battles. But these false teachers were engaged in all these prideful expressions of their flesh, thinking that they were something and saying that, you know, insulting Satan. And if it wasn't, you know, Satan could just annihilate them. I mean, they had, there, was no, there was no true comparison between the power of Satan and these false teachers. They were actually doing his bidding. Verse 10. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, talking about the false teachers. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. So it's all on the physical plane. And they're boasting and they're saying all these things and they've, 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 they're speaking ignorantly of what they do not know, talking about reviling accusations against these spiritual dignitaries. And he says they corrupt themselves. Then he says, woe to them. That's a... That's, they better watch out or the judgment is coming. For they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So he's, again, he's giving him more of a history lesson. What is the way of Cain? Cain, his offering, Abel's offering was accepted by God. Cain's offering was not. And Cain came his, Cain came his own way. It's hard to say that. Cain came his own way and worshipped in his own way. He didn't regard what, uh, how, what God said related to his offering. He was, that whole attention of, that God gave Abel and his offering, he didn't like that. He murdered Abel and so forth. And so that's a characteristic that they share. But also he says they have, they have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit. Now, Balaam was a prophet. You could have spelled it like it is in the verse, <laughs> P-R-O-F-I-T, uh, because he solicited his, his gift and, you know, they tried to, you know, he tried to curse 
on behalf of the king of Moab, tried to curse the, uh, you know, the Jews and, and blessings would come out and so forth. But yet at the end, he still said, to, when it didn't work, he still said to the king there, just get them to follow their fleshly appetites. They can't be defeated from without. They can only be defeated from within. And he was able to profit from that. And so always false teachers and those that are unhealthy always have a self-focus. What's in it for me? A, a true shepherd is going to have a heart for God, a heart for his people. He's not going to have a self-focus at all. And, and that's what he, he's saying there. They have a, a profit or, or they have a focus on profit. And then he says, and they perished and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now Korah was a Levite. They didn't like how Moses and Aaron were running things. And a group of them just said, you know, we don't like it. We don't like your leadership. We don't like what you're doing. We're, we, think, we disagree with how you're doing everything. And, and, you know, Korah had a lot to be thankful for being a Levite, being someone that is in that priestly line. He wasn't content with his calling. And so he complained and brought, you know, was used related to a rebellion, uh, how Satan would use that and so forth. And the earth opened up and swallowed him in. People say you can't take it with you. Well, that was the one time where they took it with them uh, because everything was opened up and swallowed them and so forth. So he compares them to, to them. So it's not good, not a good picture. Verse 12, these are spots in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. So they had love feasts like we have a love feast. We have an agape feast. They'd come together. It was usually the Sunday night. They usually worked all day on Sunday. And Sunday night, they'd come together, they'd worship the Lord, they would share a meal together. Some of the people that were poor, that was the only good meal they had all week. And that's when they would enjoy communion and so forth. So he's saying, these false teachers, they come to your love feast, but they're not loving anyone else. And they have no reverence for the wickedness that they're expressing, and they serve only themselves. Now again, unhealthy Christ, or, you know, people are focused on themselves. They're not focused on Others. And then he gives some great poetic uh, illustrations of, of how uh, um, impotent they are. He says they are clouds without water, carried by the winds. And what, what good is a cloud, really, in terms of what really helps us if it doesn't give water? You know, it may be good for shade and so forth, but it's only good if it has water. Late autumn trees without fruit, so trees without fruit are, are worthless. And twice dead, pulled up by the roots. That's what happens. They're dead the first time because they don't bear fruit. They're worthless. But then because of that, what happens? A tree that's bad, the, the, the person that owns the orchard, he rips it out. So it's dead first, the first time because it's not bearing anything good. It's dead the second time because it's removed, pulled up by the roots. Verse 13, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. So just like a wave has foam to it, their shame is rising up and is just as visible to God as any foam is visible to us when we see it, it coming up on, uh, on shore. Wandering stars, that's like falling stars, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. A falling star is really bright for a time, right? Very small little window of time. It's bright. It's impressive. You look at it and you say, wow, look at that. But then it just completely goes out and it fades. And that's the picture. These false teachers, though they came on the scene abruptly and they were impressive, they were going to go away. They were going to completely go away and go into utter darkness. Notice the last word of the verse, forever. Verse 14. 
Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. So that is going to happen. We're going to notice he says the Lord comes with ten thousands, not four. At the end of the seven-year tribulation, we're going to come back with the Lord Jesus for the second coming. And that's going to be an expression of judgment. The second coming is an expression of judgment in a sense because he's, he's judging the, the, the Antichrist. And he's putting an end to man's rebellion in this world and starting the thousand-year uh, millennium, as we'll see in the Revelation coming up. To execute judgment, verse 15, on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. This would be a great verse in teaching people to learn how to recognize key words in a verse. (laughs) Because how many times do we see the repeating word ungodly there? That's what they are. They're ungodly. And so God's going to execute judgment in this world at the second coming. And these ungodly uh, false teachers are going to be judged as well. Now he gets to their ungodly speech in verse 16. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. So they're not content with their ungodly actions. Now they have to have ungodly words. And, and they seduce, and they grumble, they complain. I know we can't, any of us can relate to that. I mean, that's a whole, that's, that's, those are different churches that deal with grumbling and complaining. We have no, we don't, what's that like? You know, right? Wrong. We grumble, we complain, and so forth. And, and, and so we can relate to that. But they, that marked their lives. Grumbling, complaining, fighting against authority, walking according to their own lusts, and having great, impressive words, but... They, they, were, they were using those words to flatter people to gain advantage. Notice the last two words, to gain advantage. Unhealthy leaders use people to gain advantage to serve themselves. Godly leaders worship the Lord, serve his people, and they are doing it for the people's benefit, not their own benefit. You ever notice some people are buttering you up? For some reason, I have Wilma Flintstone in my mind, for some reason, you know, where she would stand there with Fred, and wouldn't she stand there with her hand out and say all these great things to him and so forth until he forked out some cash? Maybe that's just a bad dream that I had, but I think I remember Wilma Flintstone holding their hand, or Wilma and Betty holding their hands out to their husbands. I don't know if I, I think I'm right on that. But you know someone's buttering you up, right? They're saying all the right things and saying, oh, you know, you're so wonderful and so forth, and you know that it's coming. You just want to interrupt them and say, okay, how much? How much do you want? What do you want? You know, you have telemarketers call you and, hi, sir, how you doing? How's your day going? Great, how's your script going? You know, it's like, uh, are you really saying that because you mean that? I mean, I'm okay with if, if, if you really do mean that, you know, but... Uh, why are you saying that? And, and, and people are just waiting to say things. And so in the spiritual context, people will say all kinds of things to get what they want spiritually. They will say all the right things to try to get what they want, a certain position, a certain area of influence, a certain platform. They will say all kinds of things. That's why we don't just let people just jump in anywhere 
We want to get to know them. We want to get to know who they really are, not just what they're saying. Because people can be experts in what to say to get people to let them do certain things around God's people. So we have to wait. Now the contrast in verse 17, he says, But you, beloved, remember the words, so they've known, they've known some things, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. Again, he's saying, you should know this. You sh- this shouldn't surprise you. This is not a new development. The apostles told you about this. The Lord Je- they were just repeating what the Lord Jesus said, that false prophets would come, false teachers, false Christs would come. We can't be surprised that there's the false out there, the counterfeit out there, and, and, and be surprised by it because he said it would happen. They mock. They make fun of the things of the Lord. They mock the Bible. Even in the context of speaking spiritual things, they will mock God's word and they will lower the standard and, and, and thus they will lower people's behavior, what people will do because they lower the standard. And that's why they say in verse 19, they are sensual persons who cause divisions. When people draw people to themselves, they're causing people to divide in a body and it's unhealthy. And he says, the reason why you can know they're false because they're doing that and thus you can know they don't have the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't cause us to do those things. People ascribe all kinds of things to the Holy Spirit and they forget that the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Christ. So anything that I ascribe to the Holy Spirit, I have to see Jesus doing it, saying it. I have to, there has to be a strong biblical example of that in Scripture. And so many times that, that test is failed. Now he closes the letter, begins to anyway, uh, and he says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So he says, build yourselves up. Again, he puts the responsibility on us. I can't rely on a leader to do these things for me. God says, I want you to do this. That we have a responsibility. We have a stewardship. We have to manage our Christian lives. And he says, you need to build yourselves up on your most holy faith. It's not by accident he puts the word holy in there. He's been talking about ungodliness, 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 ungodliness. And now he says, you need to build yourselves up. And you're, that thing that you're building yourself up on, on is, happens to be holy. And you need to focus on his holiness, which means we need to focus on the word of God. That's how I build myself up in part in our, in our faith is the word of God, to know what God's word says, to know what the standard for holiness is. I don't care about what man's standard is. There's so many different standards out there. All I care about is what God's standard is. And you make, make, make people upset by saying, where's your verse for that? But you're being a Berean by saying, where does... Where does what you say line up with Scripture? He says to pray in the Holy Spirit. That could mean a lot of different things. He doesn't, he doesn't define it, so I'm not going to define it. But it could, say, it could mean, of course, being led by the Spirit in prayer. It could mean uh, praying in your prayer language if you've been given a prayer language. It could mean uh, praying at certain times because he lays people on our hearts a certain way. There's all different ways that the Spirit can uh, lead us to pray. 
and, and empower us to pray. But that's how we uh, stay healthy and, and holy. And he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. When we obey his commandments, that's how we abide in him. We keep ourselves in his love because as we obey him, then that obedience is how he best shows us his love. Because as he works in our lives through that holiness, he's able to bless our lives in a way that he wouldn't ordinarily bless us because we're obeying what he says. There's blessing associated with obedience to him. And he just loves to do it. And he says also, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Talking about when Christ comes. That that expression of mercy, when he comes, having even more mercy for us, when we see him physically keeping a focus on his second coming and, and when he's coming back for us in the rapture. So it's been pretty hard here. He said some hard things. He doesn't want them to understand a misunderstand, but he wants to help them know how to help others in verses 22 and 23. He says, and on some have compassion. You're like, yes, there's some I don't have to have compassion. <laughs> no. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now, I've heard people teach this and say some people are, are helped out of deception with encouragement, and others are saved out of deception with hard exhortation and being kind of abrupt with them or blunt with them. And I I think verse 23 is more talking about having an awareness that I could get pulled in myself. Because he says, but others save with fear. What is that? Like a concern. Like I'm I'm not immune from this temptation myself. So as I'm being used to pull them out of this deception that, that they're engaged in that has a lot of ungodliness associated with it, I need to hate even the, the, the garment that's been defiled by the flesh. I need to hate everything about what they were engaged in because if I don't have that heart posture towards that disobedience and that wickedness, as I'm trying to help them out of it, I could get sucked in too. That's what I believe verse 23 is saying. So we need to have compassion. We need to be encouraging. Some of us are brought out of deception through encouragement or come to know the Lord because of encouragement. Others are, there's more of a, wow, I don't want to be, you know, judged by him. I don't, you know, that kind of thing, that kind of approach. But I think we just need to have healthy fear related to helping other people out of this deception. Again, he calls each one of us to help other people out of deception. But that necessitates me to be grounded in his God, God's word and to be built up in the most holy faith and be healthy so I can myself help other people. If I'm needing to be saved out of this deception or I'm, need, or I'm full of error and, and ungodliness and so forth, I can't really help anyone else related to that. So he, he says, you need to do this with the right attitude. Verse 24 puts a focus back on Jesus. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before the presence of his glorious of his glory with exceeding joy. God is able to keep you from stumbling. Yes, we have responsibility. He just went over that. And I love how God always perfectly puts both in the same little package. God has his role, we have our role. He keeps us from stumbling. We build ourselves up in the most holy faith, by his grace, of course, by his power. But both working together keep us where we need to be. And notice that the last part of verse 24, he's thinking of that moment when we enter into glory. He says, and to present you faultless. The Apostle Paul deals with this many times. 
talking about wanting to present the church to whom he's writing as a chaste virgin to the Lord on that day. Like he brought them through and was like a chaperone through their Christian pilgrimage so that at that time when they meet him face to face, that he won't be ashamed, they won't be ashamed, and, and they will be able to present them, he'll be able to present them to the Lord in a way that blesses the Lord's heart. There's a lot that God says about that moment when we first see Christ face to face. And God wants that moment to be wonderful for us, but he wants it to be wonderful for him. And, and that's what we need to remember, that he, he wants us to pre- be presented faultless before the presence of his glory with, look, exceeding joy. There's no joy in being presented before the Lord when we're not being able to be uh, presented in the way that God wants us to be presented. There's only joy when his purposes were accomplished. Now he gets a, this expression of worship in the last verse here. It's beautiful. To God our Savior, who alone is wise. Isn't that encouraging? <laughs> who alone is wise. Be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Ultimately, it's him. Ultimately, our lives are supposed to be expression of worship to him. Why do we stay away from false doctrine? For him. Why do we build ourselves up in the most holy faith? For him. Why do we fight false teaching and learn the scriptures so we can reject all those things? For him. It's all about him. It's all about worship for him. To stay away from those things, to not, to not underestimate the power of a small minority and how a small minority can influence us with error and, and thus cause us to be engaged in God's discipline. Or worse, even apostasy. So he warns us. And he gives us this encouragement. But again, it's all for him. Spankings hurt. Spankings hurt from God. He disciplines us very well. And if you notice that, he could take us out to that woodshed really quickly and he disciplines us really well. So you can look at this whole book and say, well, what's, what's, what's the big deal? Why, why, would I, why should I worry about this? We shouldn't worry about it, but we should take the exhortation that we need to contend for the faith But also we need to be careful about what we allow into our lives as doctrine, people's influence into our lives. Be very careful about who we allow into our lives as a regular kind of, lack of a better word, staple in terms of relationships because evil company still corrupts good morals. And so we need to be different in in a Christ-like way and to be set apart for him. But we also need to be all of that so we can be salt and light and reach this world for him. It's so a high stakes. He takes holiness very seriously. And when he says, be holy for I am holy, he's not just saying it for effect. He wants us to be holy because he is holy. And he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness to make that happen. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to live differently. We want to live for you. We want to have our lives represent worship. Thank you for this book of Jude, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you've reminded us of many of the things we've already known, just like these readers were reminded And we pray, Lord, that holiness would be so important to us individually and corporately. We pray also that you'd help us to know how you want us to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. Lord, we know that looks different for each one of us. But your spirit is so capable of showing us how to do that. So I pray we would continuously draw closer and closer to you and be more and more grounded in your word and more and more where we can be mature and and reproduce and to serve and to be a blessing to your people and be a blessing to you. We thank you for the privilege of this different kind of life. 
And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.